this is weird. Can we just start with that? This is strange. I don't really know where to look today. Um, so if I try to make eye contact with you, just hold it. It'll help me out a little bit. What's up, Claudia? Um, it's also really, really beautiful to see you all here. And this is worth being drenched in sweat as I stand in the sunlight for you all. So that's my, uh, that's my pledge today. But this is far from what any of us could have imagined church looking like. And as we settle into this space, I want to continue the posture of reflection as we have spent a lot of time this month um, capturing some pretty heavy topics and realities. Um, and today I'm gonna try and do a few things. I'm going to hopefully give us some relief by letting us know that we are not the sun. I'm gonna talk about hope. I'm gonna talk about what co-partnership looks like. And my hope as always is to merrily offer a diving board for which more thoughts, more discussion and ideas can come from. Because we are best in community and it does take all of us. So find that comfortable place and position again and imagine with me a table. Upon it laid out is everything that's going on right now. Maybe each thing is a book, one labeled pandemic. It's probably the biggest book there is. One, the local fires. One, family matters, mental health, relationships, job insecurity, the list goes on. Perhaps each one is some type of food and you have one tiny little plate in front of you but automatically the different dishes are just piling on top of it. It's overwhelming and there's no real escape. And we recognize that right now it feels like there's probably no way out and no rest right now. Showing up alone is difficult. And yet either through Facebook live stream or here in person, you have shown up today. That alone can be celebrated as can taking time to rest can be. So for now, just put aside that overfilled plate and find something that one of your senses is picking up. Could be the feel of where you are, the sound of the birds or whatever this thing is, the smell of wood chips, and let that settle you. I remember when I was young, the first time I tried to challenge the sun. I was reminded by my parents and my older brothers, don't look directly at it, it's gonna hurt your eyes. Well, fiery young Enneagram 7 Kelly thought I, of all people, could challenge that notion. Unfortunately for my eyes, they were correct. And while I don't have any permanent damage, I found out for myself that you cannot challenge the sun. And also as I grew up, I learned that I myself am not the sun meaning I'm not the center of our universe, in which if anything goes out of orbit, everything would crash. If you have teenagers or younger kids, uh, they might not have realized this yet, and you are just trying to convince them. If you had a chance to watch uh, Carl Sagan's video, Pale Blue Dot, it starts out zoomed in on Earth saying, this is here, this is home, this is us and it slowly zooms out until it is just a speck of dust suspended in a sunbeam. We are so small in comparison to the universe, and yet our successes, our failures, our realities become so big. And we have just one home, 
And there can be peace in being small. There's some peace in the knowledge that we are not the sun. But in this, we also need to step into co-partnership with nature rather than a mindset of dominion or even stewardship to step into God's plan for us. And I find it really fascinating how many images of nature come up in worship music. Things like fire and water are used to juxtapose God's power over them. Wind is often compared to the Holy Spirit, which maybe it's trying to flow through my papers this morning. The image of the ground being shaken by God's presence comes up. This morning we sung, Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam. Like a mighty storm stirring in my soul, when oceans rise, my soul will rest. Tons of natural images are present in worship. And it's almost like nature can teach us something about the being of the divine. And yet as a collective, people have torn apart, destroyed, exploited the very thing that we marvel at in National Geographic and monthly calendars with pretty pictures. We look at the big things and say, we must save this. We look at the rare things and say, we must save this. Yet, if we're being honest, all of the natural world probably needs saving from us and not by us. And we can't really take proper action until we understand our place in the mess. So the text that I'm using today is a passage that's often used to illustrate why we shouldn't worry. But instead, I want to take us through an eco-exegesis of Matthew 6, 25 through 34. So the passage goes and starts, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it's the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Word of the Lord. Here's another version, and see if you can notice just a couple of differences. So I try to find it. Is your life filled by food, or your body made special by what you wear? You're more than that. Look up to the birds of the sky. They do not scatter seeds or harvest or build up their supplies in a silo. Your Father in heaven feeds them. Are you that different? from them. Measure the length between your elbow and the tip of your finger. Who among you has the power to add that many inches to your height by wearing? Why are you getting attached to your clothes? Take a lesson from the lilies of the field and how they grow. 
They do not work hard until they are weary, nor do they sow. But I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory arrayed himself like one of these. And I'll stop there. But notice how it reads so much differently with just that slight language change. Are you that different from them? Language here is bringing us to the same level rather than putting humans on a pedestal, saying that we're so much more. And these are little things that can shift a whole paradigm. What happens when we decenter humans as the sun of nature in which everything else revolves around and depends on? Nature is void of social and political constructs imposed by the human being when we're removed. The sun is the sun, not us. We don't have to be or bear the weight of the entire world on our shoulders. And additionally, this passage was meant to be a continuation of the teaching of Jesus that people should not prioritize earthly wealth over the kingdom of God. If we start there, I think we can make the interpretive leap that capitalism and this search for more is an incomprehensible sin against community, nature, and relationship to the divine. The centering of human need and experience in how we construct our world and views has only led to the demolition of natural structure and sacredness. So let's work through what happens when this passage decenters humans. We're all relational beings. When in relationship, we are incapable of not affecting any other with any minute action. It's a give and a give instead of a give and a take a fluid collection of actions and consequences. And we live in a commercialization and exploitation of natural world. We see it every single day. And the only way that we have been able, we meaning the collective, have been able to destroy and exploit the planet is by detaching ourselves from the rest of creation. And I meant to say this earlier, but when I say we, I mean humans as a collective. Again, we want to make it clear that individual action doesn't have to be, um, and it does not have as intense of an impact as corporate impact or the collective sin of corporatocracy. In 1967, the professor of medieval history, Lynn Townsend White Jr., published a short article in the journal Science naming Christian, Christianity as the factor responsible for the crisis that we find ourselves in. The major criticism here that was expressed is, comes in twofold. One, saying that Christianity has led to the acute environmental problems because of A, its misinterpretation and misappropriation of the Genesis narrative of creation, and B, its radical eschatological apprehension that regarding the present world as perishable and hence expendable has led us to where we are. So if we read the verse in Genesis that's usually translated to dominion in modern Christian text, it goes like this. So Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the common teaching, and I'm going to mess up this pronunciation here, is that the word that's used there, yiridu, comes from the root word rada, which means dominion, or to subdue, to rule over. However, some folks have taken it another way and said if it comes from the root word yarad instead, this root means to come down or to lower oneself. Maybe you've experienced or seen someone get really low to pet a dog so it doesn't seem as threatening, 
This would be a physical kind of lowering and respect being offered. And this kind of posture offers a very different interpretation of our role. So we can continue to renew our perspective and posture through understanding six really important principles. This is all of the Earth's intrinsic worth, the, in the Earth's interconnectedness, the Earth's voice, the Earth's purpose, the principle of co-partnership, and the principle of resistance. Starting with intrinsic worth, what might appear obvious is that the Earth is so valuable. An author Wurzba says, creation is not a vast lump of valueless matter. It is God's love made visible, fragrant, tactile, audible, and delectable. We've forgotten that the world is a place so cherished that God enters into covenant relationship with it, so beautiful that God promises to renew it, and so valuable that God takes up residence within it. Our posture starts here with noticing and recognizing and externally acknowledging the earth's worth, even when it doesn't serve us. In terms of interconnectedness, a Greek Orthodox theologian, Ekaterini Salampuni, um, writes from an Orthodox perspective of this text. And I'll repeat something that I said earlier in case you didn't catch it. But the only way that we've been able to destroy and exploit the planet is by detaching ourselves from the rest of creation. Empathy is fostered out of connection. And a lack of empathy that leads to action comes from a lack of connection. In the Old Testament, the pursuit of righteousness, as is mentioned in this passage, is understood as a community-oriented practice. It's not based out of an individual pursuit of salvation. It's in taking up the responsibility not just for yourself, but for all others around you, including the earth that we live in. And at my alma mater, our student promise consisted of care for self, care for others, and care for community, in which community included the natural environment in which our university intruded upon. When it comes to the Earth's voice, I think it's hard to ignore the fact that the Earth has quite the voice and is speaking out and has been. There's an old mantra that goes, the sound farmer with tomorrow in mind serves his land by taking note of its demands. We talk a lot about making sure there's representation at the colloquial table, a diverse set of opinions and identities present. But if we think about it, have we ever pulled up a chair for the earth? When the earth speaks, can we listen and listen well? How can we bend corporations to have a listening ear? The earth's purpose goes far beyond us here and now. In Exodus, it talks about hope for the thousandth generation. And sure, while folks back then didn't count on technological advances or ability to use and exploit natural resource, I think they would have counted on an empathic continuum that would have ensured some level of stewardship, even if it's from that mindset, for future generations. Last week, Ryan said a very powerful statement that violence to the planet is violence to us. And this remains true, but I wonder what it would be like to imagine a world in which violence to the planet was a good enough qualifier 
to make change without it being about us. We are merely inhabiting a small time and space on this tiny blue dot. And whether we want to or not, we must admit that we are taking part in some amount of systems. And even the actions, the governing bodies, etc., that would help to make change are still active participants in the system. The question is merely what side do we partake in? And just as the passage says, we have an opportunity to take lessons from nature, to allow it to teach us. In chaplaincy, I often feel like I am taught more by my patients than I offer teaching to them. This kind of mutuality not only keeps us humble, but I think if anyone could really give a masterclass on God's being, God's love, God's creativity, God's sovereignty, I think it would be the earth, not any one of us. We lower ourselves, decenter ourselves. We listen to the one that has the true knowledge. And maybe out of this comes some collective action. Communities form for a reason. It's to share the collective burden. And we can go much farther with our actions when we go together. On terms of resistance, here's, here's the part where I get to talk about hope. Hope is and always has been our greatest form of resistance. And instead of it being an output, what comes of what we do, it's actually the antithesis for our ability to engage in justice work. Kathleen Fanslow talks about four stages of hope when it comes to grieving loss, when someone has a terminal illness or is approaching death. According to Fanslow, the four stages of hope are hope for a cure, hope for treatment, hope for prolongation of life, and hope for a peaceful death. I would say that we've had experiences with several of these stages when it comes to the climate crisis. And as we know, hope is hard to hold on to in the midst of so much. To name where I think some of us might be, I would say we're in some sort of stage three kind of hope, hope for mitigation of the damage done. And this is an urgent matter. Yes, the exhaustion is here. Yes, there are lists of things, individual actions that can be taken to help put a tiny drop in the giant bucket towards helping mitigate damage. But in a world in which so much of the real weight doesn't directly fall on our shoulders, we must still hold on to some hope and find ways to support those whose main job it is to step up against those truly causing the most damage. In every kind of movement we see, there are folks who step right up into the front line and when they grow tired, we must be ready to jump in where we can and to be renewed sense of strength and hope. This hope looks different now, but I pray that this will be a source of relief rather than something hard to hold on to. The irony in all of this is that it does still come back to the individual in a sense. In a system where we operate with choice, in a faith that we operate with choice, it's up to every individual to find the space in which they operate. However, the more that we turn our process of thinking towards one of co-partnership, you might be surprised at how well everything else that we believe, that Black Lives Matter, that love is love, that women's rights are human rights, would fall in line with what it means to stand for Earth's rights too. And we've been talking a lot these past three weeks about assessment, 
of understanding where we are and where we've been. And I know that there's still some sense of feeling lost when it comes to direct action. This passage says, don't worry, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't. But the line between empathy and worry is this. Empathy is the ability to identify and understand another's emotions, even when they are difficult and messy. While worry is to give way to anxiety or unease, to allow your mind to dwell on difficulty or troubles. There's a difference between sitting in the pit of despair with someone when things are hard for a short while and then forcing yourself to stay there. Empathy lends itself to hopeful action better than the soul-draining effect of worry. And if co-partnership for you looks like practicing empathy with the earth, that's all it needs to be right now. If it looks like supporting those on the front lines of climate legal action, we will be there with you. If it looks like altering certain habits because that feels like individual accountability, amazing. The book uh, Simple Ways to Save the World is a great resource from Bob. Gospel looks like accountability to ourselves, to others, to the divine, and to the earth. And we can take these things forward, even if it feels like there's already so many spinning plates up in the air. Through allowing our kind of hope to change, to rest in the knowledge that we are not the sun, to recognize the earth's intrinsic worth, interconnectedness, voice, purpose, mutual custodianship, and resistance, we can live into co-partnership just a little bit better. Amen. Amen.